Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism and the first scholarly discussion episode of Anarchism 101, an anarchist syllabus. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This week's episode is a discussion of Emma Goldman's legendary manifesto, Anarchism, what it really stands for. After the music, you can hear my conversation with my guests. Okay, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is the series Anarchism 101 and Anarchist Syllabus. And we're covering the first text, Anarchism, what it really stands for, with a couple of imminent Emma Goldman scholars. So uh, if my guests would be willing to introduce themselves, they'll tell you who they are, and then we will get started with a discussion of Emma Goldman and her life and this text. Okay, would you like to go first, Penny? Uh, sure, happy to. Um, so I'm Penny Weiss. I'm a professor of uh, women's and gender studies and political science at St. Louis University. Most of my career has been um, uh, dedicated to expanding the canon of political thought to include uh, women thinkers and people of color um, throughout all of the eras of political theorizing. Um, that is um, how I uh, came to Emma Goldman was through the study of the history of um, political theory and feminist theory. Both we put out, um, Loretta Gold, uh, Kensinger and I um, put out a book together, Feminist Interpretations of Emma Goldman, that was after, I think, nine biographies of her, the first text to treat her as a political thinker, which mm. is um, how how I approach her. And that's the fate of most women thinkers is that their life holds much more fascination than their ideas do. And usually their lives are a reason for writing their ideas off. So mm, absolutely. Um, in addition to political theory, I'm a master gardener and do a lot of work with kids. Thank you, Penny. Hello, I'm Kathy Ferguson. I teach political science and women, gender and sexuality studies at the University of Hawaii. So I kind of have the same job Penny does in a different place. Uh, most of my research these days is on different aspects of anarchism. So I wrote a book about Goldman uh, a few years ago uh, that um, Roman Littlefield published. It's called Emma Goldman, Political Thinking in the Streets. And I'm now finishing up a manuscript for Duke University Press called Letterpress Revolution, Anarchist Print Culture. Um, and so I'm looking at the role of letterpress printers and the presses themselves in the anarchist movement. And then the third book that's lurking behind that one and will come out eventually is one that I laughingly call everybody but Emma Goldman because <laughs> as I studied Goldman I kept finding all these other women that were doing interesting things in anarchism and then I'd find somebody says gee it's too bad there weren't more women uh Emma Goldman was the only woman but then here's 10 more women so how come nobody's seeing this so uh, I have about a thousand women on my <laughs> website Oh, that uh, is, is um, uh, at the wow. University of Hawaii. Um, you can get at it through my departmental uh, page. Uh, so I have about a thousand. I'm sure there are more. And I'm going to write a book about them. Yeah, well, I, I think before we move on, I will just say it does seem like in general, the anarchists get written out of the historical 
record. And so when you consider the ways that women are written out of the historical record, women anarchists have got to be some of the least likely to receive their due when we are looking back to this era. And that is why I chose to kick this. Well, I chose to kick this off with Emma Coleman, because this, frankly, is the single best manifesto declaration of principles of anarchism that I have ever read better than anything by Kropotkin or anyone else as much as I love Kropotkin but also I just thought it is it is time that Emma Goldman gets her due and I cannot believe it's it's been taking so long for her to achieve the uh the importance that she I I think now is gaining in studies of the movement yeah I appreciate you looking to her to to help us set up you know what anarchism can be how we can think about it yeah Okay, Kathy, would you mind um, starting with the short biography of Emma? So we've got some some facts down before we move on into this text and her ideas. Sure. Um, I'll just hit a few of the high points of events that shaped her thinking. Um, She was born in 1869 in Lithuania, uh, came to the United States in 1885, and was uh, here for most, I mean, she did some traveling, but mostly in the United States until she was deported uh, after World War I, uh, spent the rest of her life with exception of one three month return to the US traveling in primarily Europe and Canada. And she died in Canada in 1940. So here's the three, uh, maybe make it four uh, events that it's kind of a Uh, If you know those things, you'll see how her thinking and her activism changed over time in response to what was going on. So the first one was Haymarket. When the Haymarket anarchists uh, were uh, framed for the bomb that was thrown at a demonstration in Chicago in 1886, um, and then eventually four of them were uh, executed and one killed himself in prison, the others had other sentences. Um, that was a turning point for a lot of people. That the an older narrative about this is that that kind of killed anarchism because it was so traumatic that a lot of people said, "Well, let's give up. This is too dangerous." But it actually could be seen as the opposite. That it rejuvenated anarchism in some ways because people like Goldman and Berkman and so many other people, when you read their biographies, Haymarket was pivotal. So for that younger generation coming into their political activism, the, this sort of widely recognized as, as unjust by people who were not in the least bit anarchists, but they still didn't think the state should kill people who didn't commit a crime. It widely uh, recognized as, as illegitimate and thus spurred a, a growth of anarchism. So that's one thing, Haymarket. Second is the... Uh, effort to assassinate Henry Clay Frick, who was the manager of the Carnegie Mill at Homestead. And Berkman and Goldman, they were very young. Uh, They were actually running an ice cream parlor and they heard about the Homestead uh, strike and how the Pinkertons were called in and there was violence against the strikers and they were outraged and they were still operating under the sort of very sort of Russian notion that, the masses will rise up in revolution if you show them it's that the elites are vulnerable. And so an act of revolutionary violence, like the uh, called an attentat, an assassination of a class enemy, would 
followed by an explanation of that because you were supposed to get arrested and go to court and give your story in, in your trial. That was supposed to be a, a thing that stimulated political rebellion. And it turns out that really doesn't work very well, <laughs> kind of outside of Russia, maybe in a few other places. Um, so it was a disaster uh, in many ways, but it really changed or, or it provoked Goldman to think about the role of uh of violence in political change. Um, that same theme is sort of how do we make change to the two other events I want to mention were formative and one was the Russian revolution and the other was the Spanish revolution. So uh, when Goldman and Berkman were sent into exile, they went to uh, Russia on the way over in this leaky boat called the Buford, uh, the um, sailors mutinied and tried to give Alexander Berkman uh, leadership of the the boat um and i've always thought you know it would be berkman he was he had such um a leaderly presence he was he was good at that and so bergman basically says well we're going to russia anywhere where else are we going to go uh, so he said no thanks and the boat went on its way and got them to uh finland and then russia and and uh, so they were um present for the period of time where the revolution became colonized by the Bolsheviks. And they were in Russia for the Kronstadt rebellion and the repression of that, the bloody repression by Trotsky's Red Army. And it was terribly traumatic for them and made them say, this is the wrong way to have a revolution. They left. And then the next big event that I'll, I'll just touch on here is they spent really a good 15 years Rethinking Revolution. And Alexander Berkman's book, The ABCs of Communist Anarchism, mm -hmm. is one is an outcome of that, that Goldman completely agreed with. She says this was our thinking, even though it's his words. And basically, they came to the realization that if you're going to have a revolution, people have to practice. They have to, there has to be a, a cultural grounding for self governance and for practices of mutual aid. And that has to happen by doing it. And they saw in Spain, the, the, what happens when you have an area where two, three, four generations of people have done that. They have organized themselves that way. They know how to do it. So that, that I thought that was a, a huge change and important change for her and Bertman and, and many anarchists to really see what worked in Spain and to realize that needed to be more widespread. Okay. I love that. I love that last idea that um, uh, that anarchism requires uh, a certain kind of knowledge and experience and experiential um, uh, 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 diversity. Um, that it's not just the absence of something, but the presence of um, quite refined. Um, and imaginative knowledge. Yeah, I think she defines at one point in this text anarchism as education, as an as an educational project, and she does not mean sit, sitting down in a classroom. <laughs> Most Do, definitely not. Doing anarchism is the anarchist education. I think. Yeah, yeah that's right. Wonderful. Um, I, I thought we would next talk about before we move on to the text and um, anarchism, uh, Emma Coleman's place in in American feminism, because she's someone who has at various times been placed in and outside of the narrative of American feminism. I'm nowhere near as expert on that narrative as 
you two are. So what, what can you tell me about Goldman as a, as a feminist, as we understand feminism in America in the 20th and 21st centuries? I'll start and then jump in anytime, Kathy. Um, uh, you know, in, in virtually every era, uh, feminism definitionally is um, controversial. Um, and, uh, you know, who gets to decide who is and is not one. Um, but by placing herself outside the, um, the drive for suffrage, um, which was the largest mass movement of feminism at the time, um, she put herself out, Goldman put herself outside that, that mainstream of, of feminism out of outside of liberal feminism um, by saying that you're fighting for a bigger piece of a corrupt pie. And the idea is to, is to be working for something um, uh, very different. You know, she, she came to her own feminism as a result of being a um, young uh, Jewish female worker um, and came to understand oppression um, through through that experience when she first came, especially to the um, to the states. But you know, as she developed her feminism, it became, you know, associated with a lot of things that we consider very much a part of it today. Um, whether that be um, sexual freedom, uh, reproductive freedom, a critique of the patriarchal family and of the institution of marriage in particular, although that's gone less by the by these days. You know, thought that. Uh, you know, for women to flower the way that she wanted men to flower, um, they needed both feminism and anarchism. I, I totally agree with, uh, with what Penny said. And I'll just add that by, you probably hear a little bit of impatience in my voice because I'm kind of tired of being told that Emma Goldman wasn't a feminist because she said she wasn't a feminist. And you have to look at what ideas mean in their context. Ideas change, concepts change. Over a hundred years, when she said she wasn't a feminist, she meant, as Penny says, that she wasn't a suffragist. And she saw the feminist movement, rightly, I think, having narrowed itself from an earlier, much broader grounding uh, in economic and social and literary and religious con uh, struggle to the vote. And no anarchist is going to if that's what it takes to be feminist, there will never be an anarchist feminist, <laughs> right? Because it, it doesn't just rule out Goldman, it rules out a whole, a whole dimension of feminism that ties feminism to a critique of capital, the state, established religion, and all forms of hierarchy. And to me, that's extremely relevant to, to, uh, to feminism today. I think she resonates with contemporary feminists mm -hmm. because of that anti-hierarchical pro, she's a horizontal thinker. She doesn't, there's no one foundation uh, of her thinking. It, it, it moves like an assemblage sideways. This is the last thing I'll say about this is that Goldman, like most anarchists, well, I'd say probably all anarchists, many, many socialists and many trade union women saw herself as an advocate of women's equality and freedom. That to me is a feminist. Mm -hmm. And when she wrote to her niece, Stella, she said, I'm a better feminist than these suffragists. They only care about one thing, that's to vote. I care about it much more. They're not too radical, they're not radical enough. You have right. to have a bigger picture of feminism and I, she's right. 
And she took a lot of her bearings from the most marginalized among women too. I mean, uh, immigrant women who couldn't afford the children that they already had and couldn't stop future pregnancies and so on. Was there an element in which the suffrage movement is also affiliated with the temperance movement and some of the more conservative elements of society? Does that make sense? Because if so, that would not be something that I feel like Emma Goldman would appreciate. <laughs> that was the other largest mass movement that would have overlapped with her uh, with her lifetime. And it, while it um, overlapped with suffrage, um, uh, and in and in some ways substantively did because um, you know what a lot of the uh, uh, women were um, dealing with was men uh, losing their paychecks in the bars mm-hmm. um, so they couldn't support their families and then um, uh, domestic violence that would uh, escalate with drunkenness and so those were also you know um, feminist issues gender based violence and. Um, you know, the right to uh, a living wage and so on, but they were separate movements. Okay, thank you. Okay, would one of you like to b- begin with this essay or, or Goldman's? I just Go had ahead. One, one opening thought, if, if, if I could. Sure. Um, and, you know, I went and as I was reading it, um, I was imagining her audience. And of course, this, like most everything that we have of hers that was written was also spoken and went through many, many drafts uh, uh, along the way. So I, I picture here her talking to the skeptic about anarchism, whereas others are written to insiders and so on. Um, you know, the, you know, from the, the opening poem and other places in there, she talks about how um, anarchism is reviled and demonized and so on. Um, and so she's talking to that reviler of, of anarchism um, as you would, and she's going to answer what she thinks are two of the very common and and I will say still dominant objections to anarchism um, and will answer them in such a way um, that allows her to give her own definition of what she thinks anarchism really stands for. Um, So I think that she imagines um, also a reader or a listener who who believes that, um, that religion ennobles us that property enriches us and that governments keep us safe and free. Those beliefs are pervasive. They're almost entirely unquestioned and Emma Goldman thinks they're entirely wrong. (laughs) But I think that's who she imagines that she's talking to is somebody with those beliefs who has the standard objections to anarchism. And so it's an attempt to reach across a, a chasm here a little bit. I think it's really important that you say unquestioned. So she is thinking of someone who hasn't ever thought, does the state not, oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 go, please. I, say, I, I think I think if, if there's someone who has accepted the idea, this came up very powerfully, very recently when people who had not heard of police abolition, heard of police abolition in 2019 and 2020, and their response was just like, well, but you cannot do that. They right. had not considered police abolition before. And so it was a thought that could not be spoken. You know, a lot of the people who would come to hear her speak, um, you know, would have um, perhaps 
some curiosity and some experience with some form of political activism or radical um, political affiliation. Um, but those beliefs are again, so pervasive and um, you know, it, it, we think they're just self-evident at this point. So they, they, we don't generally engage in argument about them. Excellent. I think that's a great way, great way of putting it. Emma Goldman wants to argue about the things that people have not even thought to yeah. argue about. Thank you, Penny. And another aspect of that, to tie on to Penny's point, is that she early in the essay spends a paragraph on what people think is practical. Because she says, look, that. there's two things that people ways that people write off anarchism. One is it's violent and destruct destructive and so forth. And the other is that, well, it's a nice idea in theory, but it would never work in practice. And she says, well, let's think about this word practical. If practical means you can already do it, whatever <laughs> it is, within the existing structure that you have, well, then nothing radical would ever be practical because it can't, it's, it, it's not, it can't take root yet. It has to have some other soil. And so finding where that other soil already exists, that's another, I think, really important part of anarchism in general and Goldman in particular is anarchy isn't a far-fetched future to them. There are aspects of human life that are already anarchistic for all of them that, that are based on mutual aid, that reflect the capacity for self-governance and that interact with people as free members of a self-regulating community. So build on what you've got, right? And then something else becomes practical. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, it's so interesting that these two objections that it's vile and that it's beautiful, but impractical, you know, <laughs> one thinking it's good, one that it's bad, but everybody's still against it. You know, when you have that kind of agreement to cross difference, then something something big is, is going on there. Um, but I, I I do think that um, um, that we continue today to use the um, claim that something is impractical as the easiest of ways to dismiss something, whether it's the idea of a child, of an idealist, of a dreamer, you know, of, or of an anarchist. If you can just say it's impractical, you've put the entire burden on them and, and made the test that you can do this thing as long as nothing else has to change. That's what it means. And, you, and, you, and you're not gonna demand anything of anybody. Then it's practical. And that's just, you know, um, such a, a like poverty of imagination um, uh, to get to that point. It does seem to me, and she draws this idea from Wilde as well, that it is about it, imagination. And I think that's why, at least with the recent Graeber and Wingrow book, and also the Kropotkin encyclopedia entry on anarchism that I'll be talking about uh, next month, they go to the past, not because they think it's necessary to go to the past to find some utopia that you could dig up in the dirt, but because people say, this could never be done. And right. the easiest way to refute that is to say, well, I can imagine it, but if you can't imagine it, here it is in the human past. And so if it was, it can be again. 
And it seems like I can't think of the name of that book now. There's that giant book that came out recently, the history of everything. Yeah, or the dawn, like the, that. the dawn of everything. That's the great dawn of everything that, that kind of referring to. Yeah, right. Yeah, claims that there were all these anarchist possibilities, but you know, in in stunning diversity before we came to have any form of government. Yeah, yeah. So so for her, something is practical if it has vitality, and it has to have enough energy to be willing to um, get rid of the weeds, the stagnant, the diseased, all of those things, um, uh, and enough to, um, to sustain something new. So sometimes when I read that passage, I think of like, like, um, you know, a situation like a divorce, where you have to have enough energy to stop the current state of affairs, um, and, and, uh, and step outside of what you've been doing, but you also have to have enough energy to then start to build a new life. Um, and so that's the, that's, if you have those two things, then, then it's practical. I think another thing to add on here that Goldman would really have appreciated is the number of other of scholars who are turning often toward the end of their scholarly career to, to look at anarchism and to take it seriously intellectually and politically. Mm. So I'm thinking of uh, Benedict Anderson's Under Three mm-hmm. Flags, which mm-hmm. is a fabulous book on basically transnational global anarchism, and he centers it in the Philippines. Um, another book is James Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed. Oh, yeah. That's a great book. Um, Catherine Malibu has a new book essentially on mutual aid that she's put together with a bunch of other people. Dean Slade just came out with another book, or a book on mutual aid. Um, I think that it's a, this is an important hmm. moment to look, his, to look as, as scholars at this broader um, uh, landscape and ask why it is that these folks, they certainly didn't make their careers, they didn't make their intellectual life around anarchism the way Goldman did, but nonetheless, they see it as a fruitful vehicle, a fruitful avenue to explore. Um, so that to me is great. That's powerful. So, you know, that that's so interesting that, that people come to it, you know, when they have a time for some more peaceful reflection, maybe, or <laughs> things come to a culmination and you've, you've done a great deal of, of um, soul searching and academic work and so on. Um, you know, Goldman says it's, you know, it's not um, unsurprising that anarchism has the reputation that it has, right? Um, uh, that we are um, actively misled about it. And some of the forces that um, that she uh, is going to critique are the ones that are responsible for giving us um, an, an incorrect uh, Im- impression of it. But um, you know, again, that that kind of poverty of the imagination, where we where where we don't think things are are doable that are outside the way that they're being done at this very moment, um, is something that a lot of interests in the status quo um, are happy to have you believe, right? Mm-hmm. So um, again, just the more radical your idea, the more that will be laid down to you. But she says, you know, again, for, for all we believe in wonderful things like progress and development and things like that, every new idea struggles. And the more radical the idea, the more it struggles. And that is no accident. 
I don't think maybe it's not a coincidence, Penny, that you've really grabbed onto these like organic metaphors because it's I'm I'm hearing the gardener speaking when you <laughs> when you when you talk about the shoots and the and the and the struggle for the plant that you want to grow up. Um, Absolutely. I think it's time that we talk about violence then, right? Because that is the other uh, great objection to to anarchism. I know it's something that was a controversial topic, not just for anarchism, but for Goldman throughout her life. And then, you know, Kathy has already told us that she did, in fact, participate in this uh, assassination uh, attempt. So what's her what's her answer to the question of, oh, we can't have anarchism because anarchism is violence? Well, one of the things she says, and, and I'm sure we're going to come around to a few of them, is that um, that anarchism does want to destroy some things. Um, and we should be upfront about that. That um, again, if if um, um, if what you've got is something that is unjust, then you want to destroy it. But people just see the dismantling of the status quo, um, and and to them, that's that's unacceptable violence. Kathy, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I do. I think that um, Goldman like many anarchists struggled with this question. And she, Goldman was an accomplished prose stylist and she crafts herself in her self-presentation. Living my life is not just, this is what happened to me. It's, this is how I want you to view that this stuff that happened to me, right? And so as a performance, as, and I don't mean that in a negative way, as a creative self-presentation that crafted her story then she she tells the Frick episode, the attentat against Frick, which failed by the way he lived, as a turning point in which she became more convinced that you can't seek change in a way that is it's consistent with the change you want, that the means have mm-hmm. to be consistent with the end, which is a basic anarchist point, but it's not always clear what it means. And so I, I, I just want to say that I think anarchists were always... Many anarchists, not the Tolstoyan sort of principled civil disobedience crowd, but the rest uh, struggled with this. Uh, Paul Averick once mentioned to uh, my friend Barry Pateman about Goldman, she never met a bomber she didn't like. (laughs) Um, And so I don't think that her statement in Living My Life that she turned away from violence because she wanted the means to be consistent with the end. I think she believed that, but that didn't solve the larger problem of when you have an incredibly violent society Mm -hmm. and you are, and working people are constantly being barraged with uh, structural and physical violence from the state, from corporations, that from other states, from international police, that that the sort of notion of who should be not violent, <laughs> needs, you know, is is more complicated than it might appear. Profoundly uh, so. Yes. Yes. You know, I think that the other thing that we associate anarchism with that's related to destruction is disorder. Right. And, and partly it's the, the violence that comes from disorder, right? Whenever there's mayhem, we throw our hands up and say anarchism, <laughs> right? Um, and I assume beautiful things will happen when you know, that cry goes up. But um, I think, you know, to me, the, the most 
Um, there's so many fascinating things about her definition of anarchism, but the first one is that it, she says it's the philosophy of a new social order, not disorder, not chaos, not nothing, but a new social order, right? So, um, but this is going to be, this order is going to be something different. We think of order as being dependent upon the existence of a government, and she's going to go the complete opposite direction. So this order is going to be based on liberty, uh, as she says, unrestricted by human-made law, which leaves natural law still operating. Uh, and then the rest of her definition is that it is the theory that all forms of government rest on violence, and um, that makes them um, wrong. And she thinks um, also she'll prove that um, that they're unnecessary as as well. So 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 now we know that anarchism has to be destructive because the old order is founded on violence, and we do have to get rid of that. It's wrong. It's harmful. And this new order is new because it's not associated with the rule of law. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. This point, Penny, connects so beautifully to what we were saying before about why the constant dismissal of anarchism by anybody with any authority, including university presidents and people running for any public (laughs) office ever. Um, And that is that the idea that anarchism is a different kind of order is not generally perceptive. It's not it's not thinkable within the dominant discursive arrangement because anarchism is the, the thing that they need so they cannot be it. It's what people <laughs> fear is called the constitutive outside, right? It constitutes what's inside by always being outside. So how do you know something's orderly? Well, it's not anarchist. And how do you know you're in it? Well, it's not orderly. And so if you're the thing that has to be constantly thrown out, of proper order so that proper order can be what it is because it's not you, then then in a, in this oddly ironic way, authorities need anarchists in much the same way that you know, homophobic people need gay people so they cannot be them. Yeah. And so that 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 I think that gesture of using anarchism to define order as not anarchism has one of the consequences is to fail to see the different kind of order that anarchists create. And I think once you pay attention to that, once you like, for example, read Paul Averick's The Modern School Movement, and you see what anarchists did to create schools, that was, it's an amazing story. And then uh, it seems to me that we have to reverse that old saw that it's a nice idea in theory, but whatever work in practice. I think the theory needs some work, but the practice is remarkable. <laughs> I love that. I, I think to go back to what Penny says, uh, what Penny said earlier, she uh, Goldman just reverses all, all of this. You know what's dis, disorderly? It's it's what corporations are yeah. doing to the world. You know what's violence? It is the state. Do you know what's right. ignorance? It is religion. All the things that, and she, to me, uh, I think it was upon reading Goldman that I really came to grasp the the arguments that people were were making uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Not that I had not understood the argument, not that I had not sympathized before, but when she just puts it straight out and says, who are the people who are doing the most violence? I mean, leaving aside gun violence, prison is 
is violence or the threat of violence. If you see the prisoner, you know, walking from one cell to the next cell, they're not doing that of their free will. They're doing that because if they do not, they will be hit with a stick. Right. And Goldman's so clear. That is violence. A prison is a million acts of violence on every individual every day. And we say that right. we are worried about violence, right. but we have prisons. Think yeah. about um, the number of movements around the world right now where populations are fighting against unjust, cruel, oppressive governments. I mean, they're almost innumerable, um, not, not to mention our, our own social movements here, um, the ones that are, <laughs> are fighting <laughs> oppression, not the ones that are taking part in it. Um, yeah, so, but nonetheless, government maintains this idea that right law and order is its saying, and only with them apparently do we get any kind of order. And Goldman has this beautiful way of, of, of um, capturing what they do offer. And she says it's order derived through submission and maintained by terror. <sighs> and if that's the best you can do, yeah. right? And she says it's actually not the best we can do, that there's actually a truer social harmony that grows more naturally without force, without authority, um, but out of a solidarity of interest in freestanding communities. Yeah. And, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s. Uh, uh, terror was precisely right when I became an adult, what the government claimed they were going to protect me from. It's, an, it's another beautiful uh, inversion. Uh, Kathy, did you want to weigh in on this? You know, I was going to say something and I totally forgot what it I'm was. Sorry. I'm sorry. Too busy at listening. To <laughs> It'll come back. Well, I, I did want to talk a little bit about this idea that um, that that comes up a few times in in Goldman, and also it comes up frequently in John Dewey, who is a philosopher I greatly admire. Although I wish he was a little more anarchistic, <laughs> which is that there is no question of the society versus the individual. This is the sort of classic argument within anarchism. Are you an individualist anarchist or are you a communist anarchist? And Coleman says that, that this conflict is, uh, is in some ways a mirage, can be dissolved. So I wondered if either of you wanted to weigh in on that, on that thought. Um, I do. It's one of my favorite points in, in this piece, actually. The, the opposition is one that um, goes to defining schools of thought. I mean, it's so, it's so familiar. Which do you prioritize, um, the individual or the social? And she not only argues against dividing anarchism into communal or communist <laughs> and individual, she quotes, if you look at the people she quotes in this essay, she quotes one from every school of thought, mm -hmm. an individual anarchist, a communist one, um, proprietarian one, yeah. Um, so she, so she's actually doing the work of weaving them as she, as she um, writes this piece together. Um, sometimes that section on um, uh, on the two actually needing each other um, for either one to flourish, so that you destroy the one you think you're celebrating by putting the other one down. Um, it, it often reminds me of. Um, Sort of the the yin and yang of um, mm -hmm. ancient Chinese thought that that you can't um, uh, understand these things as not in relationship to each other, 
Um, and yet, um, this was one of the, I mean, this is, this is kind of a common pattern in, in, um, among women political thinkers that they'll, they'll find this sort of division among the men thinkers that's just established and taken for granted and say, who, who told you those were compatible? <laughs> and, you know, often it comes from the work that women do and the lives that they lead and the reproductive lives they lead and so on that they come to see that this is um, not a, a, a necessary opposition, although we can turn it into one. Uh, but that um, societies flourish when individuals flourish and individuals flourish when we have a rich social life. I'll, I'll add to that that Goldman was not alone in this move. In the early part of the 20th century, the old individualist versus communist argument was getting pretty stale. <laughs> and quite a few people, Tarita de Marmol, a Cuban anarchist, came up with the phrase, we want anarchism without adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> so no individualist or communist in front of it, just anarchism. And then we'll discuss how the various aspects uh, in, relate or stand in tension, but they aren't opposing each other as, as sort of enemies. And one of the things that I think is important in, in realizing why that mattered so much is that the people who are called individualists, who basically were very skeptical of collective property ownership and who thought individual property ownership was a something that would protect non-elites from, from powerful institutions because a farmer would have their own land, a worker would have their own house, that they were not protecting corporate capitalism. The individualist <laughs> anarchists, contrary to what has been ways that libertarians have tried to recruit them, were never in favor of corporate power. When they talked about, when they talked about individualism and being in favor of private ownership, they were basically talking about 60 acres and a mule. They were, it was a, it was sort of land for the people. Um, and I, I think that's really important because there's no such thing as anarchist capitalism. Just <laughs> right. I, I have avoided discussing the anarcho-capitalist thus far on my podcast. I'm sure that run is going to end someday, but uh, I, would, I would rather, I, I completely agree with you, Kathy, and I'm quite happy to leave it at that if that's okay with you. Yeah, fine. Um, that that does bring me to another uh, another thought, though, which is when I first read Goldman, I just was delighted by her. Well, first reread her for the first time since grad school. Delighted by her complete, I would not say appropriation, but I would say recognition of the great nineteenth-century American writers. I don't know if she does uh, Dickinson, but uh, all the many of the great abolitionists, and then. Thoreau, Emerson, and Whitman, the people who oh, we... Oh, dramatist. Man, she's a big quoter, always attributes them. Oh, it's yeah. wonderful. But it's it was my job for, you know, 15 years to cram this knowledge down young people's throats. I was an American literature professor. And I was like, this is American literature and you <laughs> have to learn it whether I want you to or not. And Goldman turns around and says, oh, is there a greater anarchist than Emerson? Yes, it's Henry David Thoreau. And that is, you know, do, do we need to rip up our textbooks now? They're filled with anarchists. Does this mean I tell students that Emerson invented the idea of, of America that is still animating many versions of American thought? Has America, you know, been animated by anarchism all this time? It's another one of these delightful re reversals. I don't know. Uh, where what what brought her to these readers except uh, these texts except I guess they, they were in the air in America in the late 19th and early 20th century. 
And it was also a strategic decision on her part to reach uh, what used to be called a native audience, meaning mm-hmm. a non-immigrant audience. Um, and so she anchored, you know, she, I mean, I think she loved them. It wasn't that she forced herself to read them, but she saw the value when you're trying to talk to Americans about anarchism, that you quote Thoreau and uh, Emerson and Whitman, because they all loved Whitman. Um, and that to sort of, that's a, that's a foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I just think we need to inform some of these uh, legislatures that uh, yeah. their that their high school students are being taught anarchism uh, in the They'll form get of there. You know, with the, the, it's, it's amazing <laughs> that Whitman is still taught, um, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I think I have um, exhausted my topics, but we certainly haven't exhausted our our time. And what yeah. what more should we? I guess I want to say a couple a couple more things. One is just to um, uh, make clear that in in um, uh, this piece that that she um, gets her wrath at three different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that she says are the forces that are preventing that kind of blending of the individual and the society that, that um, she knows is possible. Um, and that is religion, property and um, government. Um, so we, we have um, focused mostly on, on government, but she thinks that the relation of the individual to each of these three institutions is very similar. And in each case, it's a relationship of subordination, you know, where the virtues are, you know, meekness and subservience and uh, obedience and, uh, and so on. And, um, you know, she spends the least amount of time on uh, religion and then increasingly more on property and the, the most on government. But, um, but all three are important to her. Um, she's, and here's a quote from her. She says that all three sing the same refrain, sacrifice, abnegate, submit. Um, and then if you go back to her definition of, uh, or actually it was in the opening poem of the, the piece where, where it closes by saying is the um, essence of anarchism is neither to rule nor to be ruled. And so these all have the exact opposite of, of that kind of relationship. Um, I'll, I'll sort of carry on with that and make two points I, I hope are relevant. And one is she uses the, the uh, language in here. She talks about how anarchism is rel- relevant to every phase of human life, mm. uh, the individual as well as the collective. And in other places, she uses that idea of being relevant to every phase of life to talk about things that, um, uh, like we might even call them interdisciplinary. Like she, she has this wonderful letter to the printer, Joseph Ischel, where she says, if anarchism were only an economic doctrine, it would never have caught on, though it would never have gotten anybody to care about it. That it's also about our political lives, our literary lives, our interpersonal lives. It's about the uh, poetry we, we can read and the earth we can live on. And so that idea that there, that you don't want to anchor your anarchism in a single sort of substructure of anything, that what you want to do is connect the various flows of power and flows of meaning that are available and build differently. I think that's, that's in this essay. And I also love the phrase where she says, anarchism is a process, not a finality. Mm. Finalities are for gods and governments, not the human <laughs> intellect. 
that's a great phrase. And it's echoed by Rudolf Rocker, the German anarchist in Berlin, the Russian anarchist, uh, anarchists all over the place who are insist that anarchism is a process and that anarchy is a process. So when you combine those two things, that idea that, that your thinking has to always be open, there's no final conclusion that you arrive and then you're done, and that every phase of human existence that's, that it matters to us needs to be relevant, I think you can see that anarchism is a very open and flexible way of thinking that invites other trajectories of thought to come in. Um, and it's a to, fabulous invitation, right? Yeah. It's a fabulous invitation. And, and yet um, that'll, it'll be criticized, like, where's the blueprint? Yeah. You know, show me how to set up my anarchist society. Um, uh, but um, so, so sometimes to get a sense of how far away from that we are, sometimes when I, I talk with my students, like about the families that they imagine for themselves, you know, I'll ask them really, you know, basic questions. Like, do you think you'd, you'll do best in life living alone, living with one other person, living in a small collective, a large collective? Do you think you'd like to have kids? Do you think you want the kids to outnumber the adults, the adults to outnumber the kids? You know, and I'll go on and on with these kinds of questions. And and they're all, you know, pretty basic, but they'll never have thought about like, what kind of person am I? Would I be a better parent if I was a single parent or if I parented in a collective? Like, who am I? Where would I, where would I thrive? Where would my children thrive? Where would my my um, lovers thrive. Um, but we don't do that kind of individualization, even on the small level of families, hardly, no less when it comes to workplaces and political communities. But those are the kinds of questions that she invites us to ask so that we know ourselves and set ourselves up for the richest life possible. And I, it seems to me that in 2022, as we are looking at the end, hopefully relatively soon, although I think I said that last year also, of of this, you know, emergency response to the pandemic and looking into hopefully finally a post-pandemic society, anarchism is a way to question those foundations of society and and listen to the people, the people who have been struggling to keep the world going. Uh, while the technocrats and bureaucrats and politicians have, you know, not been helping us out and saying, hey, how how could we make this easier for you, parents of small children, so-called uh, 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 essential workers who have traditionally been marked by the ease with right. which they are thrown right. into the trash? And we, know, yeah, we know great change is possible and, and we know great change is possible overnight. Because we've seen right. it happen. We saw it happen just now. And I can't think of anyone better than Goldman. To, to, to suggest that, that sense of possibility in this historical moment. Yeah. I also just want to say briefly, Kathy, I, I was very struck when you were describing uh, you know, that anarchism is not uh, dependent on any single strain of thought. It doesn't have an end of history. It's, it's not a substructure, whether, uh, whether intentionally or not. You, you were uh, criticizing classic Marxist thought, and that's something that I really <laughs> think is so important from anarchism. I remember... Uh, when I was, you know, in graduate school and studying political philosophy, I was drawn to Marxism, but eventually went with uh, American pragmatism because American pragmatism was flexible and, and, and Marxism was not. And I would talk to Marxists who would uh, explain to me that Marx was right, that what an ideology is, is uh, not how you see the world, but how you see the world 
incorrectly. And Marxism wasn't an ideology because it was true and it had the answers. <laughs> and the fact that people were still saying that in the 21st century made me run, run away from Marxism, much as I appreciate the critique. And so finding Goldman and Kropotkin and realizing you can be just as left-wing as Marx was, but with this openness, this organic sense of an unfolding world and human potentiality has been just a, just a delight for me. I know, Kathy, were you, were you thinking of Marxism? Well, <laughs> in, sure. in I, I'm thinking of Marxism, I'm thinking of liberalism too, which isn't the same in terms of like, there's no substructure, but there is an implicit grounding in a kind of standoff between liberty and equality, which mm -hmm. I think is one of the things that keeps reigniting the argument, well, either you're an individualist or you're a communist, mm -hmm. you can't be both. Because in a liberal world, if you've got equality, you lose freedom, you, you, you lose liberty. And if you have liberty, you endanger equality because they're defined already as the opposite of each other. <laughs> um, so it's kind of tautological. So I, I think anarchism is um, more interesting than both traditional Marxism or traditional liberalism for its unwillingness to, to embrace that kind of closure. But I, I also would say a word for people who are maybe call themselves autonomous Marxists or kind of are the, the Marxist friendly side <laughs> of anarchy or the anarchist friendly side mm -hmm. of Marxism. Um, and the same for liberalism. There's people like Dewey, uh, <laughs> William James. That to me is the anarchist friendly side of liberalism. I would add Jane Addams as, as well. And so I, I think, you know, it's, it's really good that those boundaries are, are permeable, um, porous boundaries, because there's a lot, uh, you know, I get a lot from James that helps me think better about anarchism. I get a lot from Kathy Weeks, the um, socialist feminist who writes in a really engaging way about work um, that helps me think my anarchism better. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, my, my last thought would be that, um, you know, Emma Goldman asks us to look a little more deeply at where we place our trust in what mm. and in whom and where we are least trusting. And to think if maybe those relationships aren't in obverse relationship to where they should be, that we least trust ourselves and one another to work together harmoniously, that we you know, are willing to trust jails and handcuffs and batons, you know, and, um, um, and that, that, um, that, again, that, that belief is something that we have been very actively taught Thank you. Kathy, is there anything you would like to say as we move no, towards just, wrapping up? Just thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk about her with you both. Oh, this was this was wonderful. Thank you. I guess, Penny, would you say that what Goldman is telling us is we is we can trust ourselves? Because it seems to me that that's what she said. We can trust ourselves, our, our, our communities. We can trust ourselves and one another. Yep. That's what we can trust. We can trust ourselves and one another. Yep. And we have learned these past couple of years that the big systems, we cannot trust them. For those of us who weren't aware already, we cannot trust them. We can trust ourselves and one another. Yeah. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, Kathy. Wow, that was uh, just amazing. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Penny. I learned so much. Um, listeners, please email me and let me know what you thought, because I would like to hear if you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. And please read lots more Emma Goldman. Her stuff is out there for free. 
on places like Project Gutenberg, and you can email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com if you would like some further recommendations. The next episode of the series will be my reading of Peter Kropotkin's Encyclopedia Britannica article from 1910 on the history and practice of anarchism. I hope you join us for that, and of course the discussion of that later in February 2022. Please remember that this is an entirely listener-supported show. No sponsors, no ads, no institutional backers, no paywalls, nothing except for the money that you listeners give helps me keep this podcast going. If you can give, please go to everydayanarchism.com and make a donation. If you are unable to give, anything else you can do to support the show, like telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, would mean so much to me and so much to the continued existence of this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Kathy and Penny. I cannot express how overjoyed I was with that conversation. And all that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.